All right, how's everybody doing today? Pretty good? If you've not already heard it, welcome to New Community. We're glad that you are here this morning. Uh, I have the privilege of being able to teach uh, this morning, but before we do that, there's a couple of quick announcements that I want everybody to uh, be in the loop about. First one is Bloomsday is coming up. How many people have run or plan on running Bloomsday this year? Raise your hand. Not a ton of runners. Okay, that is okay. Uh, <clears throat> this is our slide. So uh, if you're not familiar, Bloomsday is uh, an enormous uh, race that is hosted in Spokane every year, the first Sunday of May. It pretty much takes over all of downtown Spokane. But even before we moved to this building, uh, we really felt like this was a great opportunity for our church community to be involved in something that Spokane, our larger community, is doing. And so uh, even when we were in our old building uh, years before, we would close on Sunday morning. We don't host services, and uh, we encourage all of our people to go and be involved in the race somehow. That could be running the race, it could be cheering on the sideline, it could be helping man a water station uh, that, that the race is putting on. Any way to be involved, we want you to be involved. So, again, like we have in years past, we will not be having services here. Um, and so we are asking all of our people to go and be involved in the race somehow. If you hate crowds, then this may not be your bag, and that is okay. Host a barbecue afterwards. So your friends that did run the race uh, and don't mind crowds, have them come over and host a barbecue. Just be involved somehow uh, and be in relationship on that day. So that is going to be, I believe it's May 6th, right? May 6th, the first Sunday of May, we will not be having services. Um, Russ and the interns are still on their uh, Chicago trip. So uh, as you're thinking about uh, them today, be sure to be praying for them. They've been having an incredible time. We got a text this morning that they were, uh, did they just start their ninth service? Where's Dave? Yeah, just started their ninth service uh, of the morning. So on Sunday uh, for their trip, they visit, um, I don't know how many total churches, but they will visit a number of churches to get an idea of the different expressions of church uh, being played out kind of in the neighborhoods of Chicago. And they had already been to nine this morning. So uh, pretty impressive feat. Um, I told Russ that I plan on only going to one service today, and that is this service. <clears throat> but um, they actually fly home tonight. They'll get in late tonight, so uh, we can be praying for their safety as they travel back home. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing from them uh, in the weeks following. Um, lastly, everybody take a look up to that skylight right now. Wow! Julie made mention last week that the skylight needed to be cleaned, so I spent the last six days up there. <laughs> Just a little way I could serve the community. Uh, no, that is a total joke. I would never go up there. Uh, it's terrifying. Um, but one of our small groups uh, heard the call, and they showed up on Wednesday night and spent a couple of hours up there cleaning that thing. So... Um, those people uh, in that small group, you know who you are. Thank you very, very much. Uh, and that small group actually has consistently been a part of building projects uh, here and even in our old building. They show up once a month and clean uh, the kids' area upstairs or uh, man you know, manage things like this. They have just served this community really, really well. So uh, we are very, very thankful for their service. And uh, lastly, which is kind of uh, leads me uh, from that into their uh, group facilitator, Greg Conley. Is Greg? Hey, Greg, can you step out from the back there? 
<clears throat> this is Greg Conley, everybody. So he has uh, been facilitating that group for uh, a number of years. Last week, we introduced him as a candidate for a new elder uh, at New Community. And as we have done in uh, years past, any time that we have had, um, we've kind of invited somebody to step into that role, we want to make sure that we give the community enough time to process that and to pray through, is this the right person to step into that role for our community? Also gives us an opportunity for anybody that may have uh, a word of wisdom as to why Greg would be a good candidate or maybe why he would not be a great candidate for that role can come forward and speak to us. So uh, we're going to give another week or two for that. Um, so if you have a word of wisdom to us, come and find me. Uh, Russ is not here this morning. You can tap uh, one of our other elders on the shoulder or send an email or whatever. But we want to give the time uh, for the community to respond um, as we are uh, kind of praying through this appointment as a, uh, as a community for a new elder. All right? Thank you, Greg. <clears throat> All right. Let's, uh, let's turn to John in our Bibles. John 16 this morning. So we are uh, continuing in our series of John. As you may know, we've actually been studying the book in reverse order. So we started John 21, and we are slowly making our way through the book of John, but uh, not reading it backwards necessarily, but studying it, um, studying it kind of in that reverse order, which means today we're in John 16, verses 4 through 14, which uh, we read earlier in the service, or it was read uh, earlier in the service for us. But in particular this morning, we're really going to look at verses 8, through 13. That's going to be uh, which, uh, what we kind of study uh, or really look at. These verses speaking specifically to the sending of the Holy Spirit. So speaking about the Holy Spirit can be kind of a, a tricky proposition in some ways because uh, the influence of our own church experience, I would argue, has led many of us to misunderstand the Spirit in its action and role in the church. Different denominations and even different churches within the same denomination have emphasized or de-emphasized the role of the Spirit within their teaching and within their form of worship. Now, this is not necessarily a bad thing, right? But I think we have to recognize that what we believe individually and how we interact with the Spirit individually has likely been influenced by our personal church experience. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example uh, from my life. I grew up in a Methodist church, actually uh, same denomination of the church building, uh, which this church building was, a, a uh, United Methodist church out north. And although the church I grew up in was uh, rather progressive socially uh, and even progressive um, uh, politically with things uh, as as to how they focused on social, uh, social justice, women in leadership, different issues like that. It was a pretty progressive church. The teaching on and connection with the Spirit was nearly absent from my church experience. Our, er our worship was orderly, and uh, I would even say my dad, who is here this morning with me, uh, might, um, might say this as well, borderline uninspired, all right? It was a very orderly type of worship, but there was never, uh, it never really felt emotive in any ways. And the uh, kind of rote service structure did not create for much space for the potential movement of the Spirit on a Sunday morning. So besides the weekly kind of call and response prayer where we might uh, speak or pray to the Spirit or 
Sometimes the pastor might mention uh, a story or use an illustration of where the Spirit moved in his life. There was really devoid of any movement of the actual Spirit in those times that you could feel or that you could experience. So I grew up in this understanding, and, uh, and it has shaped me and influenced my experience, and it's shaped and influenced my faith in a lot of ways. It's been joked about as our uh, kind of from our staff as we were setting out to uh, put this service schedule together, put the uh, preaching schedule together, that this is not necessarily the best message for me to speak because of that experience in my life, that I actually don't have uh, a lot of personal interaction with the Spirit or history of personal interaction with the Spirit because of this influence of my church upbringing. And it will application, efficiency, and discipline. Those are values that I hold very, very dear and have shaped my faith in a lot of ways. And at times, it's been said that my life can seem void of the Spirit altogether. Now, Grace, my wife, my beautiful wife, we just celebrated 15 years of marriage this week. Thank you. Uh, Grace grew up in a much different church environment than I did. Her church environment was uh, charismatic, if you were to uh, try to put a label on it. Worship services included flags and banners being waved as a form of worship. The gift of tongues and prophecy for certain individuals was a regular Sunday occurrence. The pastor maintained an openness to change the message or even the service at large based on a word that he might have received that morning. And there was even the occasional throwing of confetti at times. All of these things make me incredibly uncomfortable. (laughs) And if I were to sit in that service uh, when uh, Grace was attending that church in her younger years, I would have immediately been questioning the idea of, is this the most efficient way to run a Sunday service? And I don't think that it is. However, that has shaped Grace's faith in some incredibly beautiful ways. Grace's faith is much more emotive and experiential. Grace has an incredible openness in her faith and an intimacy with Christ that I personally have never really felt. And because of that, she has the freedom to feel the Spirit in ways, again, that I never have. Now, these things aren't necessarily right or wrong. They're just different expressions of the same faith. But because they are so different, it can create confusion within the church as to what is truly the role of the Spirit and the Spirit's relation in our lives. And this is why I believe our scripture this morning is important. My hope is as we look at this John passage, we'll be able to study the Spirit maybe apart from our own church experience up until this point. All right, let's pray over that, and then uh, we'll jump into John. Father, we, uh, we humble ourselves this morning as we sit next to somebody who has uh, undoubtedly had a different experience than ours. We pray that um, you would convict our hearts in powerful ways. We pray that your spirit would be present in this place. We pray that we could come to the scripture apart from our own biases or our own experience and just learn. 
and grow and be challenged. So, Lord, as we study, uh, we do it in, uh, in your name. And again, we ask that uh, you would guide us and that you would teach us this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So our scripture is set in the middle of the longest discourse in John. Chapters uh, begins in chapter 14, ends in 17. And essentially, Jesus is giving his last and final message. And some of it is speaking to the disciples. Some of it is uh, kind of this prayer that is overheard by Jesus And in a similar way to like uh, a coach that would wave in his team in that final timeout right in the fourth corner, this is like the last thing that you wanted to give, uh, that he wanted to give the disciples. Here is my parting message to you, the most important thing. And so I kind of imagine a huddle bringing in and the disciples coming in and Jesus speaking kind of in these soft tones saying, this is it. Listen to what I have to say right now. Leading up to verse 8, Jesus once again reminds them of what they might not fully understand, that the final act of his life is coming, that he must go to be with the Father through the death on the cross and the glorious resurrection, he will be reunited with his Father. You see, Jesus was not intended to be with them always. And this perceived loss of their friend, this perceived loss of their Lord, who they had been walking with, was actually of great gain, as Jesus says. For as Jesus goes to be with the Father, the Spirit is promised to be sent to be the godly agent of the church moving forward. And in verse eight, uh, 8 through 10, he details what I believe is the first of two purposes of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So the first role that Jesus says the Spirit has is that of conviction. The Spirit was sent to make known the wrongness of the world. The conviction of the Spirit will show how the world has misunderstood and misappropriated everything. This conviction, Morris says this, it should not be overlooked that all three aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit dealt with in verses 8 through 10, wrong, right, and victory, are interpreted Christologically. Sin, righteousness, and judgment are all to be understood because of the way they relate to Christ. The relation between the Spirit and Jesus is similar to that of Jesus and the Father. Jesus came to point us to the Father, and the Spirit comes to now point us to Jesus. And this is done in three specific types of conviction, or three ways that the Spirit will convict. The Spirit will first convict the world that sin is not to be understood as simple transgressions, the bad things that we say and do, and that at its very foundation, Sin is the disbelief of Jesus. That's what he says in verse 8. So therefore we surmise that the manifestation of evil and hatred in our own personal transgressions is born from this more foundational sin of disbelief. The Spirit will come to convict us on our disbelief in Jesus. 
Boltman concludes this, sin is not therefore any single ghastly act, even if that action be the crucifixion of Jesus. Sin is not moral failure as such, but unbelief and then the bearing that comes from it. Our transgressions are simply the symptoms of our greater sin of disbelief. Similar to the Jews, hyper-focus on a detailed following of the law, all the while they missed Jesus standing right in front of them. The Spirit was sent to the world to remind it that the issue is not the things that have been done, but that things have been done as a result of the greater issue of disbelief in our lives. So rather than instructing people on simple, simple behavior modification, we should seek to make known Jesus which then leads us into our second conviction of the Spirit. Jesus continues in verse 9, saying, The Spirit will show the world to be wrong about what is truly, fundamentally right. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The movement in our spirit, in our world, is consistently pointing us back to Jesus as the ultimate reality for which we should build our lives. Where the world's vision might skew towards self, might skew towards other competing philosophies, the conviction of the Spirit always brings our gaze back to Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate and fundamental reality. Leslie Newbegin, the famous missiologist, speaks about this idea. He says, as unbelief is the essence of sin, so faith is the essence of righteousness. And faith means precisely that we trust what we do not see. Jesus lived on earth. He was seen and heard and touched daily by his disciples. But in his going to be with the Father, he knew those who would follow would have to trust in the testimony of the Gospels and have faith in that which they could not see. This is the ultimate reality and the righteousness which the world has neglected to recognize. And so the Spirit's movement, the second conviction, the action of the Spirit in the world is to continually point toward the ultimate reality of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. The last conviction stated in verses 11 says this, but <clears throat> means this, lastly, what I believe to be the most beautiful aspect of Jesus' teaching. In verse 11, he says, About judgment, the prince of the world now stands condemned. So even before the resurrection, Jesus knew that the Father would defeat evil. And yet many Christians still live defeated and fearful lives. This was the Easter message from a few weeks ago. That in the resurrection, Jesus defeats evil. He conquers death, and we therefore can live similar lives. The conviction of the Spirit comes to remind us that the prince of this world now stands condemned. The Spirit testifies to the fact that this should be the essence of the good news of the church. In a time and a place where it can be easy to give up, to look around and only see hate and sadness and pain and vitriol, we must hold on to the Spirit's convicting message that the ruler of this world, the prince of this world, has in fact been defeated. 
and the kingdom which Jesus established is always advancing. Similar to the Easter message earlier this year, the role of the Spirit as the sent advocate is to remind us that the Father's love and Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient and that we have been given freedom. So the first role of the Spirit is that of conviction, to convict the world on where it is wrong, wrong in the fact that it has misappropriated sin, in the fact that, that it does not believe Jesus has given us freedom. The second role of the Holy Spirit is that of guidance. In verses 12 through 13, now speaking primarily about this role, Jesus says this, I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, and he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. So after speaking about the first role, the conviction that the Spirit brings, Jesus concludes that there is much more to be explained, even so much that they could not handle the messages at that point. And in that moment, Jesus acknowledges that his followers may not be able to understand all that is real and true. The Father and Son knew that we could not be left to our own devices and because gave us the spirit to guide us in truth. This, like the first role of the spirit, is a very Christological idea. We know this because John 14, 6, when Jesus responds to Thomas's worry, he says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do, not, you do know him and have seen him. You see, Jesus is the truth, and the Spirit that was sent, his advocate, will always guide us back to Jesus. Clearly, this is more personal of the two roles that the, uh, that the Spirit plays. The first being corporate, this idea of conviction, the Spirit comes to corporately convict the world of its wrongness. This one being more personal in nature, that the Spirit has come to actually be our guide, to lead His church, His followers, into the truth that is Jesus Himself. A.W. Tozer said this, Holiness is taught in the Scriptures is not based upon knowledge on our part. Rather, it is based upon the resurrected Christ indwelling us and changing us into his likeliness. This very indwelling that Tozer speaks of was only possible if Christ could go to the Father and then send his spirit as a guide, leading us into the process of sanctification, guiding our lives even when things seem hopeless. The Spirit is the given gift of God to be our resolve and our steadfastness, to continually point us toward truth in Christ. In and through the Spirit, we have the ability to become more like Jesus Christ. It's not by our hard work. It's not by our effort. It's only because we've turned our lives over and allowed the, guide, allowed the Spirit to guide and equip us. 
So what does this all mean, these two roles? How does this actually affect our lives? What does this mean for us? Regardless of your experience, Jesus seems pretty clear about why the Spirit was sent. Jesus could not stay, and so the Spirit, the very essence of God, was sent to convict the world of its wrongness and guide the faithful towards life, towards truth. The greatest truth of this is that we are released from being and trying to do these things. Meaning first, we actually do not have to convict the world. The Spirit was sent for that reason. This should be a significant release for many of us. The ever-present Spirit of God is moving and convicting the world of its disbelief, declaring the rightness of Christ and affirming that evil no longer has power. You see, too many of us have spent our lives trying to be the spirit in others' lives. We get wrapped around the axle trying to figure out how we might convict the world of its wrong, how we might convict our neighbor that the way that they're living is not the right way to live, when instead we have been called to love. Now, certainly, we have been given the ability to evaluate what might be right and what might be wrong in this world. But our call as Christians is to love so deeply that it creates space for the Spirit to move in and convict that person individually. There is great, great freedom in this for us. Let go of the ideas that other people's decisions, other people's actions other people's life choices, and ultimately their salvation rests on you because it does not. You will be held accountable for how you have loved. So spend those around you. Secondly, the spirit sent as a guide is promised and given to all, no matter your experience. For those who believe and have trusted in Christ, you can rest assured in the spirit and its action in your life, always guiding you towards the truth of Christ. I have spent much of my life comparing my experience with the experiences of those around me, wondering why the Spirit seems distant at times, or maybe even, frankly, absent in my life. All the while, missing the point that my journey toward Christ, my growing in truth and a knowledge of who Jesus is, is a direct reflection of the Spirit's guidance always and continually in my life. This comparison game will only stunt spiritual growth, and it actually calls into question your trust and belief in the gospel message. We have been promised the guidance of the Holy Spirit, not a set of certain experiences or answered prayers or life-altering spiritual experiences. We have been promised the presence and guidance of Jesus' advocate, and that is all that we need to trust him. Richard Rohr speaks about this idea, and he says this, The indwelling spirit is the constant ability of humanity to keep going, to keep recovering from its wounds, to keep hoping and trying again. I think one thing we love so much about young children is their indomitable hope curiosity, and desire to grow. 
They fall down, and soon they are all grins again. Another generation is going to try to live life to the fullest, but too often, by the time they are my age, they don't smile all that much. And we ask, what happened between 6 and 60? It has always, in some form, been a loss of spirit. Because if the Holy Spirit is alive within you, you will always keep smiling, despite every setback. We are not only sustained in life by God, we are not only saved by Christ, but we are guided by the Spirit. The Spirit is our companion, is the advocate of Christ sent to be with us in an incredibly personal way. And even when it's easy to question everything, to wonder why God might seem distant, remember the very fact that we can experience hope that we can still sense joy amidst sadness. And the reality that each day we move forward little by little is the work of the Spirit's guidance in your life. Find hope in those words. Find hope in the reality that the Spirit is with you, has always been with you, and will always be with you as your guide. Would you stand with me? I want to leave you this morning with a, uh, a prayer over our community, a prayer of benediction. So if you would bow your heads, let us close our eyes. And I actually want to take a minute or two just to be silent before words are spoken. To think on the role of the Spirit, the fact that it has come to convict the world, the fact that it has come to actually be with us as guide. community. May the teaching and prayer of Jesus be one of hope and freedom. May we feel the release from carrying the burden of convicting others and work to allow space for your spirit to do what it was sent to do. Instead, may we dare to love so boldly that people would be moved into the kingdom by the lives we live. And Lord, we thank you for the guidance that you have given us through your spirit. May we always recognize your movement in our lives. May we no longer look to those around us asking the question why they may look different, but trust in your promised spirit. Trust in the fact that you always make good. Father, we love you. We thank you. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you continue to move and shape this community in any way that you see fit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Go in peace today.